Happy Monday. This is Cordelia on the We Healed Together podcast. I'm very excited for today's episode. I read all of your survey responses and there were several requests for some parenting episodes. So super excited. I have two weeks in a row this week and next week. I have some brilliant parenting experts on the podcast. So this episode, I have Erin O'Connor on the podcast, who is one of the faces behind the Instagram Scientific Mommy. Next week, I have Judy Delaware on the podcast, and she is one of the faces behind Feeding Littles on Instagram. So on today's episode, I am talking with Erin O'Connor, We are going to be talking about independent play. Erin is the director of New York University's Early Childhood Education Program. She is a tenured professor and holds a doctorate in human development and psychology from the Harvard Graduate School of Education. She has a master's in teaching from Fordham University And she also has a master's in school psychology from Columbia University. Long story short, she is a genius. She teaches human development and education classes to pre and in-service teachers in New York City schools. She also co-directs a community partnership working with families and caregivers. She has published in educational and psychology journals, including the American Educational Research Journal, Journal of Educational Psychology, and Journal of Applied Psychology. Her work is supported by grants from several institutions, including the Institute for Education Sciences. She's a member of the American Educational Research Association, American Psychological Association, and the Society for Research and Child Development. She's an awesome lady, and I follow her on Instagram. I share her posts to my story a lot. Her Instagram is at scientificmommy. I'm going to put that in the show notes. Put all of her info in the show notes, including her website, a way for you guys to book one-on-one consultation with her, other offerings she has on her website as well. I I honestly really enjoy her posts a lot and that's why I was very excited that she agreed to do the interview and talk with me today because I think she is the perfect person to give us some insights on independent play and weigh in on some parenting tips. So without further ado, Let's get healing together. The episode will start just after a brief message from our sponsor. Time for a message from our sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. As you probably know by now, I'm a huge advocate for people getting help from a licensed therapist. I think that's so important. Therapy has been really helpful for me in my personal life, not only in getting out of a toxic relationship, but 
even when I've not been going through tough times, therapy has really been a huge part of helping me feel more at peace and feeling happier overall in my my day-to-day life. BetterHelp is a really great resource for anybody that is wanting to take that next step and find a therapist. It's customized online therapy. It offers video, phone, even live chat sessions with your therapist. So if you are not a fan of being on camera, that is an option that exists for you. It's more affordable than in-person therapy. You can actually start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. They work to assess your needs and match you with a licensed therapist. So this network that BetterHelp offers, it has over 15,000 licensed therapists within that network, which is way more than most people have available locally to choose from. Also, let's say you get paired with somebody and on BetterHelp and you decide for whatever reason it's just not a good fit, you can always switch therapists. You can try somebody else and it's free to change at any point. You know, you can just let them know that you want to find another, you want to try somebody else out. This isn't self-help. It's not coaching. It's professional therapy. And it's available worldwide, so it's not just available to people in the United States or America. And financial aid is available. Millions of people have already been trying BetterHelp and doing it. And it's always a good time to start therapy and invest in yourself and get into a better space. So I'm really excited. This podcast, again, is sponsored by them, by BetterHelp. And all my listeners, all the listeners of the We Heal Together podcast are going to get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp. You just need to go to betterhelp.com slash Cordelia. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash Cordelia. Help is H-E-L-P dot com. And it's my name, Cordelia, C-O-R-D-E-L-I-A. I'm going to put a link in the show notes as well. nice to have you here. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm excited for our conversation tonight. Me too. And before we get into everything, I really wanted to kind of get into a little bit about you and get to know you a little bit. So you, from what I've gathered, you're like the smartest woman on the planet. (laughs) You have all the credentials and amazingness. You're the director at NYU's Early Education Program. You have a doctorate in human development and psychology from Harvard Graduate School of Education, a master's in teaching from Fordham University, and a master's in school psychology from Columbia University. I just want to hear all about it. I want to hear your career, what led you down this path, what, what kind of drew you to those degrees as well. 
Well, so thank you. <laughs> Those are really nice words. Um, <laughs> you know, it all really kind of started when I was an undergrad. I was a psychology major and um during that program, I also worked in a preschool. Uh, it was a therapeutic preschool for children who had experienced either, you know, abuse, neglect. And I really, at that point, realized that I wanted to work with children who had experienced some sort of sort of adverse, um, you know, early early life experience and to figure out, you know, how to support them in the class, whether it was in the classroom or outside of the classroom. And at that point I did not have a teaching credential. Um, So I thought, you know, I think the next logical step is to get a teaching credential, get a master's in teaching and to focus on teaching, especially in the early years to, uh, you know, help children sort of navigate these different worlds that they're living into home and school and, so I did that, uh, and I was an assistant teacher for uh, kindergarten, and I loved that experience and really found it to be very rewarding, but at the same time, a little bit frustrating in that I felt like with 25, sometimes 30 students, it was hard when you really wanted to spend more time focusing on one child and what they were experiencing in the moment. But at the same time, you know, you had to make sure that other kids were safe and, <laughs> and that they were, you know, engaged. And so I felt like that wasn't really my strength was sort of this, you know, balancing of, of attention or whatnot. So that's when I decided to go into school psychology because I thought, okay, this is an opportunity to meet with kids one-on-one in small groups, have, you know, sort of that freedom to, to focus just on sort of their experience. So I did that and um, I worked as a assistant school counselor and again, a wonderful experience, but um, this kind of nagging question was in the back of my head the whole time. And it was really what role teacher relationships play in children's development. We, you know, we talk so much about the academic stuff, but so much is about the social stuff, right? That goes on between teachers and students and and supporting children and learning these important social emotional skills. And, you know, back in, so this was, you know, I'm dating myself, but this was in like the late nineties, early two thousands when it was very much still kind of an academic focus that was, you know, you know, on these relationships. And I was like, you know, I really want to do some research and kind of, you know, get my hands dirty and thinking about, you know, why they matter and how they matter and, you know, how we can best support relationships. And that's when I decided to go into research. Um, So it was sort of the securitist path. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's so cool though, that you, you know, I, oftentimes I feel like the best, researchers are ones that have experiences in all of those areas so I think it's really cool the path that you took you know starting from a psychology degree then getting some teaching you know experience then school psychology you know it's like you kind of did a little bit of each so you're not just really working off abstract ideas and research and that's really I would think that's really helpful it's super helpful. I mean, I was, I feel like I was really lucky that way too, that I sort of was able to, you know, as my husband always points out, really like not have a paycheck until I was, you know, mid thirties, <laughs> you know, it was sort of a, a luxury in a way, but really getting to, you know, experience what it's like to be in a classroom and, you know, yeah. having all these 
you're constantly having to make a decision, like what's best for this child, this child, this child, the classroom as a whole, you know, and yeah. it's just nonstop. And, and I think sometimes, unless you've really sort of lived in that world, it's hard to fully relate to all that goes on <laughs> once, you know, you're in the classroom. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think I'm sure at least that that makes your research, you know, that brings a good lens to your research where you're able to think like how things would actually apply <laughs> in a real life setting. So you now lead a research program. Is that right? That's right. Yep. Awesome. So can you kind of elaborate what your research focuses on? Yeah. So I've, um, again, I feel like I've been lucky that I've had really good mentors along the way. So when I was in grad school, I, my mentor is Kathy McCartney and she was a researcher on this really large national study of early care and education. So she and all these other researchers had gathered data on children from birth through, they were I guess in middle school when I was in grad school and really sort of looking at the role of these different contexts in children's lives. Um, but in that capacity, I was sort of the data analyst, right? So the data was already there. I, I was, I was just analyzing it. But then when I started at NYU, um, I met another woman, Tandy McClary, who had her own um, intervention focused on using puppets to sort of teach children about just the different ways it's, it's temperament based, but really sort of the focus is on thinking about how children approach, you know, children and adults approach situations differently and how we approach it might be very different than some, how somebody else is approaching it and sort of learning about those differences and how we can, you know, sort of respect and come together um, to, to, you know, engage in the classroom in a productive way kind of thing. So, um, so I became involved on her project and then I got a federal grant to follow children who had been in this intervention when they were in kindergarten and first grade, now that they were at the end of middle school, because, you know, a question that exists for a lot of this work is, you know, what, how long are the benefits, right? <laughs> like, right. There's often, you know, they're expensive, they're time consuming. We're asking teachers often to do like what they're already doing, plus this other thing, <laughs> whatever the <laughs> intervention involves. So really, you know, are there long-term benefits that we can really sort of point to? And um, we were lucky because the way that the initial study had been designed was that children were just randomly assigned to get this intervention or not, right? So you right. can kind of assume that the kids in the intervention are very similar to the kids, you know, on average, not in the intervention. And there were effects. So the children were doing better um, in eighth grade in terms of both social um, outcomes as well as academic outcomes. So, you know, as much as I like to focus on the social, of course, the academic matters as well. Right. <laughs> so it's nice to, to see that. And I, I think so much of it is, is, you know, we talk about mechanisms. So Probably a lot of the reason and the, the statistics seem to be showing it that the interventions effective is on academics is because it's making children feel more comfortable in the classroom. They're getting along better with their teachers. They're, you know, more willing to quote unquote, take a risk, you know, like ask a question, even if you don't know if you have the answer. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. And what kind of interventions, I guess, were involved in that study that, you know, the kids saw benefits from? 
So what was interesting was that study was um, what's kind of called like a three-tiered. So it involves both the children in the classroom with their teachers, um, the children with each other, and then um, the teachers and the parents. So everyone sort of gets to see the same information, which is often helpful, right? Just if you have this sort of similar experience at home and at school, it's sort of easier to get your head around it, especially when you're little, right? Um, so the, the focus was looking at these four puppets and the four puppets just sort of, you know, very generally speaking, were sort of categorized by, you know, an introverted puppet, an extroverted puppet, a puppet that, um, you know, sort of has a little bit of difficulty making transitions. So, you know, like focus, which is great, right? But then sometimes it's hard to transition if you're really focused on something. Um, and then a puppet that sort of likes to experience lots of different things. Right. <laughs> so, and children would just say very, um, and and they l- liked it too, which, you know, at first I was like, are they going to want to identify with a puppet? Right? <laughs> they do. <laughs> That's so cool. It's cool, right? And they yeah. get, so there's like a big puppet. There's a each four each of the four has like a big puppet and then the kids get like little versions of them that they can put on their hands and they'll walk around like very happily saying you know (laughs) (laughs) for drinking the friendly so the the focus is like taking those puppets and for the kids and then for the adults it's more you know sort of these temperament styles right that they're described as and just really thinking about different situations and how you approach them you know you're going into the classroom for the first time and you don't know any of your classmates, you know, um, is your puppet scared or are they, you know, ready to run in? And, and then just thinking about, okay, well, what if you were this other puppet? Like, how do you think they would feel in that situation to really help with sort of thinking about empathy yeah. as well? No, and like no. never labeling something, right. as good or bad. It's just yeah. different ways of interacting. That's so interesting. Just, I see what you're saying, like challenging them to kind of step in the shoes of, of what the puppet, you know, is feeling or thinking. That's really cool. I love that. So, I think it's really neat. Yeah. Yeah. And honest, I could talk about just your research like all day. I think I find it really interesting, but oh, thanks. <laughs> I'll try to stop my tangent and uh, you know, I wanted to talk to you today about independent play because I've seen a lot of, you know, posts and things that you've done about that topic. And I think it's so interesting. And by the way, for anybody who isn't following you, you're one of my favorites. I know I told you this earlier, but I love that you're like very, you can tell you're research oriented. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. The source is in it. <laughs> it's such a lost art on Instagram. Um, but definitely something I appreciate. So can you break down what independent play is just in the most basic terms, I guess? So, you know, independent play, we often think about is literally like sort of the child playing on their own, engaging with toys on their own. Um, but I think we can also sort of broaden that definition a bit to children engaging with other children around and either like a scenario that they've made up or a toy. Um, really the important part being it's it's only with, you know, an individual child or, or, or children that it's not adult driven. There's not an adult, you know, sort of involved in the play. It's a really children taking the lead. Okay, that makes sense. And 
so I'm I'm envisioning even like with the other kids playing. I mean, is the idea like the kids are coming up with all like the ideas and the activities and everything that that the kids are doing? <laughs> totally. So it's a good question, and it can look very different. Um, you know, depending on the environment, the children's ages. Um, sometimes, especially with younger children, in you know, just helping them sort of come up with some, you know, either activities or sort of starting down whatever the, whatever you think is going to interest them in sort of an imaginary play world. Right. Um, right. Because you, you want to walk that fine line between providing supports for children so that they are going to engage in this independent play um, without taking it over. Right. So. right. That makes it, sense. <laughs> right it's like that tricky line so sometimes it's also just you know a few minutes a day sort of just scaffolding it like you know the whatever the toy airplanes in the room and you know your son's really interested in that and you're like oh look isn't that cool like look at what it does and I just have to do something quickly in the kitchen but I'll be back you know so that it's not it doesn't feel sort of like scary. You're not just like leaving them, right? They know where you are. They know it's a short period of time. Um, And it taking away that anxiety about, or quote unquote separation anxiety or whatever you want to call it, allows them to engage then more in the toy or the environment. Um, That makes sense. Yeah. So then what are the benefits of independent play? There are... There's so many. And I think what's so interesting <laughs> is like people are starting to think about it, not just toward, about the benefits like in the moment, but also sort of later on. So, you know, it's it sort of, you know, encourages children to problem solve on their own, right? If they, something doesn't fit into something else or whatever that they need for their, for their play, then they're the ones trying to figure it out. And they have to also have like the self-regulation to sit there and try to figure it out themselves. Um, it gives them, you know, a sense of sort of control over their environment. Um, they understand that they can do this, that they don't always need somebody else to do it for them. And um, I think something that's coming up more and more in the literature that's really interesting is this idea of, you know, it's okay sometimes to be a little bored. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, right? Like, you know, to maybe you get a little bored when you're playing with yourself, but then you figure out this new direction to go and like you're excited again and you don't need somebody else to like provide that external sort of stimulation for you. And I think that's where people are saying there's going to be this link probably we'll see with children when they're older, because, you know, a lot of the risk taking behaviors or whatever that we're fearful of as parents, right. <laughs> I've seen for myself who are going to be teens is it's just, it's boredom, right? So it's that uneasiness of being bored. So it's that seeking out maybe some, some activities that are not so productive. Um, and, you know, from a young age, if we can encourage children to just like sit with that for a minute and then, you know, figure out your own sort of interests, um, it can help them later in life as well. Absolutely. I mean, that makes perfect sense. And I think even just thinking about it as an adult of the benefit of early on just being comfortable with being with yourself. I can't tell you how many adults, including myself, definitely struggled with that. Once you become an adult, you know, it's not until later on until into adulthood that you start realizing like, oh, am I... I have a 
haven't been single in a while. I keep dating all these people. Is that because I just don't like being alone? <laughs> you know, just a lot of totally <laughs> that I'm not sure if there's even any data for that. But I would think that would be good practice early on, you know, to get comfortable with yourself. <laughs> yes, totally. Right. It's it's almost like a skill. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So what par- what age should parents you know, start thinking about independent play? Well, you know, I think what's so interesting about independent play is it it can start really young, right? So, you know, when you sort of think of, you know, a young child in their crib, maybe just like playing with their fingers, exploring their toes, like that's independent play for a baby, right? So, right. And as long as they're content and they're interested and, you know, they, they, they're, you know, there's, you know, the whole sane child of scientists, but it is kind of true when you watch like infants so often, right. That they're just like fascinated by (laughs) these little, you know, like, oh my God, I can move like my foot this way and that way. (laughs) (laughs) And so right there, that's the sort of the start of independent play. Um, You know, and as, as they get older, right, it becomes more advanced and longer and, um, you know, by seven years of age often children will have sort of these elaborate play you know schemes where it's like you know they develop maps to go with their you know search for goals in the kingdom that they created and um (laughs) (laughs) so it looks different at different ages but it, it 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 does go the whole developmental spectrum you know absolutely and you know one thing that came into mind at the beginning of the episode I was kind of thinking well, what if, and I'm sure actually you could probably speak to this, like households with two parents where two parents or two caregivers are going to work and coming home. I can imagine that when you hear the term independent play, that might make a lot of like working caregivers a little bit nervous where they're like thinking, wait, do they want me to go home and just not play with my kid or not be around my kid for a while and but from what you're saying it doesn't sound like you're saying that it sounds like you're almost saying you can ease into it in like little ways is that accurate totally and and also I think you know we we live in a Manhattan apartment right like yeah so there's there's very little space for anything (laughs) independent But what I've noticed with my younger one, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's true no matter sort of where you are, is that she will play, quote unquote, independently when I'm like making dinner and I can watch her and I can kind of like, you know, get an idea of what she's interested in. I mean, she's she's pre-verbal. She's little, but um, right. and it, there's no like I wouldn't want to ha- have to like not be with her the whole time when I'm home. Right. Because it's, time yeah. is limited. and <laughs> yeah (laughs) exactly yeah no but yeah totally independent independent play can definitely take place like right next to the caregiver it doesn't have to be like this isolated thing that makes so much sense and see I knew you would be able to speak on it perfect because you are a working mom and you have a a young kid so that works I (laughs) I could envision people you know certain words like I can see somebody hearing the phrase independent play and thinking like, oh my gosh, they want me just to like drop my kid off and and leave. But it sounds like something that you can really 
like it, it's very flexible in terms of independency and it sounds more to me like a hands-off time like you're not you're making dinner and your daughter might turn to you every now and then and you know make some kind of of cooing noise and is showing that she's interested in you but it's not a situation where you're just like standing over her and you're like no don't play with that don't do that don't do this <laughs> is that yes. kind of accurate okay that's so well said and, and you know it, I think too it provides this window especially when kids are a little older right where they might be playing with dolls and you know you're doing your thing you're you know working on your computer if you're working at home kind of thing but you hear kind of like what the dolls are seeing to one another or yeah Right. And you learn, you kind of also get a window into like your children's experience that you want to be there for, but, you know, by letting them do their thing, you're not sort of imposing your interpretation of whatever event it is on them. Um, That makes sense. So it's this nice balance. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Even the doll example you gave, I could see, I'm envisioning like so many parents kind of jumping in. If they're hearing a story, like you said, that they're kind of putting their own spin on it, where they're like, we're not going to play with that, or we're not going to do that story. <laughs> so it's, totally. it definitely, I guess that brings me to a good question. On the flip side, so it's, it seems like independent play is really unstructured. So what does the research say about a parenting style that's just full of structure, like uh, like 24 7 structure <laughs> you know yeah. the opposite end of the spectrum I guess so I you know there's there's a lot of work sort of looking at how um children are so scheduled these days and this was I think what's interesting is it was like the hot topic pre-covid and now, <laughs> now yeah. it's now it's independent play it's just very funny right <laughs> exactly <laughs> but you know I think and it comes from such a, a good place often from parents, right? They're like, so like, they want to give their child opportunity to discover whatever it is they're going to, you know, fall in love with for life and whether it's chess or tennis or, you know, yeah. but it doesn't necessarily allow children to have this time to sort of decompress. Also, you know, there's a lot of work out there looking at um, the role of just sort of free play and stress. So including even like biological markers that, you know, when children are engaged in free play, actually their stress levels, their you know, hormones are, are lower often than when they're in more structured activities. So, you know, I, I think what the research is sort of leaning towards is saying, you know, some structures, great, <laughs> right? right, and necessary, um, but too much structure doesn't really allow children the opportunity to sort of develop some of these higher level like thinking and reflective skills because they're so they have to be so focused on whatever you know skill it is in the moment that they don't have time to sort of step back which I think makes sense as adults right I at least I know like when I have a thousand things going on right it's (laughs) like you just need to get through x y and z (laughs) absolutely yeah and that I mean it kind of makes sense to me too because and I don't mean this in a negative way or even a conscious decision that a parent's making, but I think as human beings, if I'm the person like structuring my kid's time, I'm just likely going to be structuring it with things that I know and I like to, you know, like 
things that I find interesting kind of thing. And who's to say that my kid even likes the same stuff I do? <laughs> totally, totally. I mean, I just, this is a personal anecdote, but even today, like I was picking up my daughter and a couple of her friends from tennis, <laughs> from a structured activity. Yeah. And they were talking about, it came up because two of the girls in my daughter's class broke their fingers today doing flag football, oh <laughs> which they goodness. love. They're all about flag football these days. <laughs> and then one of the girls turns to my daughter and she's like, you know, why the why did our moms all make us do ballet when we were younger? Like, <laughs> I I hate ballet. Do you like ballet? And my daughter's like, no. She's like, I think our moms liked ballet. <laughs> so totally right along those lines. Like, yeah, you end up, right? Like, yes, so true. Yeah, I mean, and it definitely isn't something you did to be malicious. And you definitely, I'm sure it wasn't some conscious thing where you just were like, oh yeah I like ballet I'm gonna have heard you you know it's just something that you're like just signing up because you might have had an interest in that at some point <laughs> exactly like I just never played flag football <laughs> right. never, yes but that was gonna be their thing you know <laughs> exactly uh, that's so cool I love I mean I love that you have like a personal anecdote to even weigh into so oh, thanks what can what can parents do to encourage their kids to play independently? And I, I get that this would probably vary from age to age. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> but I think, you know, there are lots of different things to consider, right? So some of it's just child temperament and, you know, some kids are going to naturally enjoy it probably more than others. Um, so just thinking, having that in mind and always making sure it's sort of a comfortable experience for them and not, you know, an uncomfortable experience. Um, and usually, although this isn't the case for all kids, you know, having some sort of quiet space or just a space with fewer distractions so that they can just sort of focus on their play. Um, and that doesn't mean like, I feel like often we have this idea that it has to be like this perfectly like designed <laughs> space, you know, it can be like the little corner behind like I mean, I'm even thinking about when I was a kid, like behind the sofa where like you kind of are doing your own thing, but like the whole family's around you, that, but that's just your little right. space, right? Um, so just having that yeah. space where kids kind of feel a little bit of ownership over it and, and know that they can, that's kind of, you know, where they can play and be themselves. And, um, and I think what's sort of interesting too is that um, you know, there's one study um, in particular that has found that, you know, kind of putting fewer toys out <laughs> versus okay. more is, 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 is better. And, you know, at first I definitely, with my oldest was like, you know, oh my gosh, I have to get this and this and this and this and this and you know, right? Yeah. And I'm not sure, you know, she, she attached to like one stuffed animal in all honesty, that, that and that's right. like a whole other conversation about the, the importance of like, right, one, one sort of toy for them. But it it's, can be a little bit distracting, right? If you have like a bunch of different toys to play with. So if you have, you know, the study found like four toys, the kids really engaged with each of those toys and kind of brought them into their play scenarios. But if you had 16 toys, then it was more like just sort of seeing what each toy did but not really engaging right that makes sense it totally does yeah that makes sense to me because if I have more choices with anything I'm <laughs> I'm stressed out as an adult <laughs> oh totally <laughs> 
that makes sense. And I also liked what you said about the example with like behind a couch. It made me think, you know, this isn't punishment. You're not sending kid to time out. And it kind of makes sense that it, it might vary from kid to kid, but kind of if I'm understanding correctly, it, it's just going to be a space where they're comfortable. Like, and it might be in their room, but it might be behind a couch or in a fort or something. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that's totally to where child temperament comes in, right? Like right. for some kids, they just, you know, they really want to be a part, even if they're doing their own thing, they just kind of want to be a, a part of, you know, the, the bigger picture. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That makes sense. And I love the study that you cited about the fewer toys. It makes sense, but it's not something I ever thought of before <laughs> because Me we too. do. I think we think we're being so nice when we're like, here's a whole basket of toys, you know, and not really thinking that, sure, that's exciting, but it also is probably overwhelming. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So what is the concept of a play plan? Like, how does that figure in with independent play? So it's, it's funny. So um, the play plan idea comes out of um, a, cur- I don't know if you want to call it curriculum or intervention, but something called Tools of the Mind, which um, was designed by, um, oh, I'm blanking on her name, but I will remember it, um, a psychologist um, that, you know, if you help children sort of plan their play before they engage in it, then the play will become a little bit more like elaborate and children will learn different social skills. Like, you know, if you all agree that, you know, so-and-so is the baker and this is like kind of the plan and then you get into your play and, you know, you don't want them to be the baker. You want to be the baker. It's like, (laughs) well, this is sort of what we agreed upon and we're going to, you know, sort of keep playing that out and um right. so it's it's teaching children sort of some different skills maybe also in play than they would get you know without sort of a play plan um and that comes around you know working with others around forming rules and sort of um you know norms for the group those sorts of things um and also for children who are shy or maybe a just a little reticent to, you know, engage, it can be a really good way to make them feel comfortable. Like, okay, I, I kind of know what's going to go on. This isn't just like, you know, an empty sort of space that can be filled in many different ways, <laughs> you know, right. sort of figuratively. Um, and that can really help children too, that, that might be a little bit more reticent. That makes sense. So is it, if I'm hearing and understanding correctly, are you kind of is it kind of meant to be a starting point almost of to get maybe the shyer kids or the more introverted kids, like giving them a clearly defined kind of launch point and then have them go from there? Exactly. Exactly. That makes sense. And I could definitely see, like you said, different temperaments. Some kids may not need that. They might be on the opposite side of that spectrum but then some kids might just need that little boost <laughs> little nudge totally to get going. <laughs> yeah sense. so what type types of toys generally promote independent play so it's funny I mean there again some of it's child you know like dependent some kids are more interested in some types of toys than others but 
often ones that really um, like encourage children to sort of quote unquote be a scientist. So really having them, you know, have to manipulate things and figure out what's going on and engage in it for a more extended period of time to, you know, really sort of get the whole complexity of the toy versus um, I forget this. There, there's a woman who does um, research on play and she has this great sort of phrase. Like there's, it's fine to have like the five second toy that like they're in line at the grocery store and like, that's just what, what's going to keep them happy. Right. <laughs> but you know, it's going to be for five seconds until you're you know, through the <laughs> line at the grocery store. Um, so definitely more of these, you know, for more extended periods of, of um, time with independent play toys that involve a little bit more sort of having to figure out and complexity. Um, yeah. Often toys too, that have different, the same toy can do many different things often. Right. So, you know, right. it can be used as, and a lot of them come back to some of the, the simpler toys or, or you know, the, the less bells and whistles <laughs> kind of, you know, Maria yeah. Montessori type of where, you know, one day, you know, you're looking at how the different sort of pegs line up size wise. And that's interesting. And then another day you're actually using that because you're pretending it's a xylophone, you know, so those sorts of things where they can, can be many different things. They don't, they aren't just like very, you know, one, one rolled or whatever you want to call yeah. it. That makes sense. Like multi-purpose kind of, kind of toys that definitely makes sense. It was interesting. I was talking to my sister-in-law leading up to this episode and I know that we talked before we started recording so she, her and my brother just had their first baby and so she gets different um ads than I do like targeted ads I guess yes. she's been you know she's now in motherhood and you know obviously this is not like in any way sponsored or directed towards anything but she was telling me a lot of aggressive kind of marketing that she's been aimed at are like subscription services that market these independent play so I know the one brand she hasn't bought anything from them she was just kind of mentioning it offhand um but she mentioned a brand called like love every which was I think everything has like been made into a subscription service now, but it was the concept, yeah. I guess, was like subscription toys, like toys that promote independent play. And I found it really interesting because obviously I don't get those kind of ads. Like I, I just, I've never seen them. I had never heard of it. So I wondered if you had heard at all about, you know, any of these kind of subscription services that are promoting independent play toys. It's funny. I had, and it, at first I was like, oh, but I actually have found like, so I, I just haven't been on the ball enough too to like <laughs> order. Yeah, anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think they do get it like a, a kind of like interesting concept of, again, like they send very, the ones that I know of, at least like, it's only like three or four. Right. So they're not, it's yeah. not like a ton of toys and the idea is you can kind of rotate them out. So, right. you know, they don't get bored with any one toy. Um, and I think they, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. And I think the ones that do it well, sort of, they, they try to take into like different developmental levels. Right. So, you know, right. You're not engaging that much imaginative play often, right. As a, a little person, it's all sensory motor, and that kind of right. stuff. Um, 
And I mean, I think it would be great if you could like, <laughs> then return them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's funny because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I have dogs, so I don't have kids yet. And when she was telling me about it, I was thinking like, that's so interesting because like my ads are all BarkBox and, yeah, and I do actually get BarkBox for my dog. So as I was like researching this, I'm like, well, I guess that makes sense. I mean, I guess, you know, I rotate the toys for my dogs, but, you know, different with kids, obviously. I just, I thought that was interesting, interesting it enough is- to bring up that it's like a, sounds like a new kind of business at least. <laughs> Totally. And I think COVID has just brought, right? Because it was like, even if you weren't a big person who like promoted independent play before, you know, yeah. I'm thinking more of like the parent group, it became a necessity. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, stuff had to get done sometimes. Like laundry had to get done, dinner had to be made. Like, and yeah. you couldn't necessarily always like be engaged in the way that maybe you would want it to before. And I think people started to realize like, oh, wow, wait, the kids are actually learning stuff. I'm actually having like a moment where I feel better either because like I've been able to get something done that's been really stressing me out, right? Or I I just need a moment to sit and just be. (laughs) So I think it has like, it's made, it's like brought that to the forefront, like that, you know, it's, it's good for everybody. Absolutely. I mean, from what you're saying, it definitely sounds like, there are benefits for the caregiver or the parent as well. What, I guess, what are those benefits? Well, I think, you know, sort of probably first and foremost is just that ability to have a moment to either organize your thoughts or, you know, I think what happens so often is we put all these things that we're stressed about getting done, like in the back of our head, but we're thinking about them even while we're like interacting with our children. Right. And it's just, it causes us to be a little bit probably more anxious than we want to be. So it gives the, you know, time to do something that, that needs to get done. (laughs) And that sort of reduces our anxiety level, which in turn, right. Kids pick up on caregiver anxiety. Like it's the whole cycle. Um, So it helps you know, both of you that in that regard, um, I think it also gives caregivers, like we were talking about earlier, like a little bit of insight into what's going on with their children. Um, you know, something that I've heard a lot about with COVID is, you know, parents were really concerned, rightfully so that the children, their children were like so anxious and so stressed about it. And when they actually were listening to them playing, what they found out is like, not all the children were. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's so interesting. It's so interesting. Like, and you know, if we're not letting them do that independent play, then we're also kind of like putting our stuff on. Right? Absolutely. I know. Yeah. That, uh, that makes sense. And I, I feel like I've heard that a lot over the past year as well. You know, people being really concerned about de- depending, especially on what age their kid is at, like yeah. how they're developing and what benefits does independent play have in that arena and you know how can it help build social skills especially during this time of a pandemic (laughs) yeah no it's so true I mean I think you know in terms of the social skills that it helps independent and then independent when we think about like independent with a 
even like a sibling that's very different in age, like that's another thing that we've seen in COVID, right? That maybe siblings that wouldn't necessarily be playing together because, you know, you're 15 and you have all these other activities and, you know, you're, you're seven, but you're together now and you're playing together is it's also sort of learning about different, um, perspectives and really being able to, even if you're playing by yourself, sort of take on these different like roles and these different sort of, if you're both, you know, the mom and the child (laughs) in this scenario, it's like, okay, well, what, what would I be doing if I were the mom? And what would I be doing if I were the child and, and learning sort of how your position influences sort of maybe how you're interacting and what you're doing. So I think that's been one benefit that independent play has brought that will be brought back into the classrooms and, you know, (laughs) wherever we go. Um, And I think too, also this um, sort of confidence in one's own ideas um, because a great thing about peer interactions, right. Is that peers can be really, you know, honest and you get a perspective of yourself and others, (laughs) your peers, but at the same time, sometimes it can, cause a little bit of self-doubt, you know, through independent play on your own, you, you know, you're able to sort of develop these sort of strengths in, in your own autonomous ideas, um, which I think also will be good when kids go back into the classroom. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, kind of like we were talking about earlier, that seems like a skill. The earlier you learn it in life, the more beneficial that if you can kind of keep in the back of your mind, like, hey, I'm actually okay if this friendship doesn't work out because I, I have fun on my own. <laughs> totally, right? <laughs> but it's an amazing life skill to have. Amazing. I mean, I think we all wish we had it <laughs> Yeah. more. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, with technology and so many, like, apps and games and things out there now, what role can technology play just in the concept of supporting independent play or supporting play in general? You know, well, it's interesting. I feel like before COVID, you know, there was a lot of emphasis on sort of the negative effects of screen time and and technology. Um, But what, so there was a study that that came out, I guess probably like midway, three quarters of the way through, I'm acting like the pandemic's over, but, you know, (laughs) through through the pandemic. Um, (laughs) And it was showing how boys were actually doing better than girls. And in terms of like what they were reporting about stress levels, isolation levels, these sorts of things. And what it seemed to be was that the boys were engaging in things like Minecraft and Roblox and these games that required there to be interaction right like in in right. real time interaction so you know if you're i I've, i have to admit i've never been on minecraft but <laughs> <laughs> i've heard <laughs> that you know if you're building this whole sort of world or whatever you know you have to interact and right at the same time kids were also like talking about stuff that wasn't just directly related to minecraft or roblox you know so it was right. this avenue for them um and then but what was interesting was that girls, they were finding, were not engaging in as much of this like real-time interactive um, play. They were engaged in more like Instagram and things where you can 
like be a step removed and maybe make a comment you would never make to somebody if you knew that they were like taking it in in the moment. Right. So I thought that was really interesting, but, and and sort of maybe shines a light on maybe supporting girls and doing more of this stuff, like, right. The, the, the interactive gaming, but also what um, I just heard about this today, actually researchers are finding is that children are taking sort of like the Minecraft scenarios and they're bringing them out to like, you know, the, the playground. So the stuff that they were, that's cool. Right. So (laughs) some of the stuff that they were engaged in and maybe are kind of like, okay, like, you know, I, I am sick of my screen, (laughs) but I still like doing this stuff. Um, which is kind of cool because, you know, those sorts of, um, games do promote these, you know, imaginative scenarios that are so beneficial for children. Yeah. I could see how definitely you could go out into the real world and, that those could be like your imaginary <laughs> characters or scene or whatever totally I think that's awesome well for anyone that is listening out there I guess just the final kind of close out message do you have if people want to learn more like do you have any books or anything that you would recommend people do after they listen to this podcast and they're like okay that was interesting but I want to I want to dig deeper. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, I think there's like the the research stuff that's really interesting, like Stuart Brown's done fascinating stuff about play. I mean, like smaller sample sizes because he's looked at, you know, folks like who are in prison and, and sort of yeah. their play histories, but fascinating research. Um, and he has, um, which I will get to you for the show notes. I can't okay. remember what it is now, but a website, which is just, it's, it's great. Um, and then tools of the mind, which is a great, like we were talking about sort of this, you know, pre pre play planning, um, is great to look at. And, um, and Vivian Paley has done some great books, um, around play and play with like neurodiverse populations as well. Um, which I think is so important to think about. Yeah, that's really cool. I'll definitely be sure to put links in the show notes too, for people as well. I feel like that's super helpful. I use, I'm one of those people that listens to a podcast and then I'm like, okay, cool. I learned for like an hour. I want to engage more. <laughs> totally. And I'm like, forget what, you know, happened like yeah. 30 minutes before. <laughs> Absolutely. And like I said, I put your um, info in the show notes, but it's at scientific mommy. And I put your website as well. If people want to connect with you or like work with you in any way do you do any kind of consultations or anything like that in any capacity yes I'd be happy to I've done a lot of work with um schools and you know like parent groups but definitely would love to also do work with you know individual like families and children um I would you know that harkens back to my school psychology days which I (laughs) I miss (laughs) um but yeah awesome yeah very incredible I so appreciate you chatting with me and being here and just being on the show today well thank you so much for having me and I just I love all the work you do and you know hopefully we could continue a conversation